Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. All right, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. Uh, I have my friend Eve S. here. I've known you for since pretty much since I got clean. You know, you're a very special person in my story. Like every time I see you, I have this feeling of like this uh, moment that I share with you like forever, you know. I'm going to share a little bit about like how my journey collided with yours. When I was in um, ninth grade, my parents sent me to military school and I uh, started doing, uh, you know, I was already on Coke. I was selling a lot of Coke then. And I was selling Coke to someone and they were like, oh, you should come by this guy Doc's house. He buys it. And I was like, okay, whatever. And then, you know, at the time people were selling pills. He told me that it's a crack house. And at first I was like, whoa, like a crack house. I was kind of taken back that somebody else knew like, a harder drug than me or like, you know, I thought I was like the worst of the worst at that point. He's like, yeah, I know this house that people smoke crack and this guy's looking for um, good powder, soft. And I didn't even know the word soft at that point. To me, it was just cocaine. And I remember he took me to this house in Shady Banks. I go there, I meet the guy and I sell him coke. He snorts a little bit of it, does like a little tester. And he goes, I remember he looked at me. He's like, wow, this is premium grade A coke. And he cooked it and smoked it. And I remember going to this house and it was like all the way in the end of this neighborhood. It was like in some cul-de-sac. There was like this fence that you wouldn't even think there was a house back there. There was like these trees that overgrown over it. You couldn't really see the rest of the road. And it would say like, turn back, private property, get off. And you'd keep driving. And then there'd be like this oak tree. And there was like the little wraparound. And there'd be this house. And it had like a screen door, then it had like another door, and then the door had like four locks on it. And I remember the pool was green, but it was like a nice house, but the pool was green and there wasn't much furniture and like the lights would always be off. And I remember I met this guy. I remember like they just called him Doc because he had like a prescription to everything. He had Oxys, Roxys, Liquid Oxys, Oxy lollipops, morphine lollipops, fentanyl patches, Zans. Klonopin, like every type of prescription you wanted, he had. And I was told that he was like really sick or something. And that's how he had all these prescriptions. But I never really knew the story. I remember he was like a, a frail older guy. And uh, I remember he had a tattoo of a, a tiger on his leg. And when I got to know him a little bit better, I realized it wasn't a tiger, it was Tigger, you know. I started going over there and, you know, I would watch them cook crack And I would always say, like, I'm never going to do that. That's crazy. Watching it was like the first time I saw someone do that. It was like something you see in movies. And like they say, you go to the barbershop, you get a haircut. And one day I remember I was just coming down off Coke and I tried crack for the first time. And uh, I was 14 at that time. And I actually, you know, kept going there for months and months. 
it got normal going to this house and I would go there and smoke and the lights would be off. And uh, sometimes there would just be random people walking around the house with candles, smoking crack, people, you know, in their 40s walking around. And at one point, I remember he said, like, I don't want anyone else in the house. Like, I'm done with everybody. But he always let me stay. He's like, but Brian, you're cool. Like, you can stay. In my mind, I was like, this is my friend. It was difficult for me because I would go to high school and hear about kids in ninth grade doing things. And, you know, all I could think about was what was going on at this house. And there was the cops would show up. There was some weird lady that lived there and her kid would be there sometimes while people were getting high. Like people would be talking about murder and just like things a 14 year old kid shouldn't be at. I eventually lost contact with those people and kept using. When I got clean, uh, it was a few years later, I was 17 years old and I started going to meetings. I'd kind of forgot about that time in my life where I was going to that house. And I remember I had a few months clean and um, I was wondering, like, do I really need to be here? Like, is this something I need to do? Like, am I really an addict? And, um, you know, I was feeling like using every day, wondering if I was ever going to be able to be normal you know, sitting by myself at school, not having a lot of friends and just feeling like super depressed, um, even suicidal, having suicidal ideations. And I was already praying at that point. I remember I used to say like, you know, I used to ask God, like, you know, God, let me know what I need to do. Like, I don't know if this is where I'm supposed to be. And sometimes I would go to a meeting and feel like this is where I need to be. And sometimes I would go and not feel that way. And I just kept going. And I remember I go to this one meeting I remember it was like a packed meeting, probably at the 10 o'clock, and I go there, and I see that it's you speaking. And I remember instantly thinking like, oh, it's a woman, you know, like that was me. Like, I didn't relate to women speakers, you know, I just wasn't into that. Like, I wanted so I was looking for people that like look like me or acted like me. And you shared this story. I remember you spoke for like 30, 45 minutes. It was just so spiritual and you were just talking about God and how God has worked in your life and the program and having sponsees and how beautiful life is now. And I remember thinking like, there's no way this woman used, like there's no way this person is like a real addict. Like it just seemed like, like a real butterfly sappy love speaker. And I remember just being there, like not really paying attention. And I remember at the end you were like, I was smoking crack. And I was thinking, I got off of the oxys. How can I get off of this? And it hit me. And I was like, I know that voice. And I just remember thinking like, how do I know that voice? And then I was looking at you and looking at you. I was like, I know this person. And I just couldn't remember how I knew you or where I seen you. And I was like, oh my God. So when you shared that, you like, you didn't say that in your head. I remember being at Doc's house smoking crack and he wasn't even home, you know, a group of people came in. It was him and some other people and you were there and you were smoking. And I remember like being stuck myself on the other side of the room. And I remember you saying, almost laughing a little bit, like I got off of the oxys. How can I get off this? And when I saw you at that meeting, it was like my past life and my present life like collided. And I had this feeling that like my higher power had been there the entire time. And like I was supposed to be here. And I'll never forget, like I ran up to you and I was just like, oh, my God, did you ever get high in a crack house in Shady Banks? 
And you looked at me and put your head down and you were like so embarrassed. You were like, oh my God, you remember me from there. And I'm like, I don't just remember you. Like, I remember you saying that. I was there when you said that. Like, I was there that day when you said that. And you were like, well, I don't remember you. And you like put my hand, your hand on my shoulder and you were like, you're in the right place, honey. And I remember just going home and being like, I'm in the right place. I'm in the right place, you know? Since then, you've just always been somebody, not just because of that story, just because like who you are as a person. I've really grown to like respect you. And like, I told someone the other day, they're like, who's the next guest on Hell Has an Exit? I was like, Eve. And they were just like, they just started smiling. And then someone was like, what? And she was like, she's just like a ray of light. You know, I would be lying if I said not everyone kind of describes you as that. Like you really are like this spiritual woman that, not just for a little bit, like the entire time I've been clean, you've been like that. You know, like you are somebody who people in the rooms, women in recovery look to as like this guiding light. Because people only see you as Eve, this beautiful, spiritual woman. And when people are like, oh, yeah, Eve's my great grand sponsor. I'm always like, oh, yeah, we smoked crack together. And they're always like, what? And I'm like, yeah, we used to get high together. And they're just like, how? Like, what? And um, I remember you would just look at me and be like, well, the story matches up. So I just want to thank you for being there for me when I first got clean. Well, thank you for the story. And Brian, I'm amazed at your retention of details that took me right there. And I think I had an uncomfortable pit in my stomach when you were describing that house. I think what I said exactly was, Thank God for the crack because it got me off the oxy. Mm-hmm. What's going to get me off the crack? And Verbatim, that's what it was. Yes. And I'm amazed that the message I gave you that night was so filled with spirit and light because let me give you a little background if I haven't told you before. I was a mess that night. I wasn't supposed to be at that meeting. I had wow. my heart broken. Um, the boyfriend of the moment had relapsed and broke my heart. I mean, I was all in recovery and thought he was too and he didn't stay clean and that wasn't it wasn't good enough for me you know I definitely have changed in so many ways the whole reason I was in that house in Shady Banks and had started smoking crack was to please the boyfriend of the moment Um, I did whatever they wanted you know to make them love me it has always been about chasing love or the feeling of love or self-love or God's love I wasn't raised with God. I wasn't raised with any kind of spirituality. So the thing that blows my mind when people say they see me as this ray of light or this guiding light or this spiritual powerhouse, I know that I have been in moments and a lot in the past, but you know, I've really had my struggles in the last five, six years. But back to that story, you were in the right place. You were then and you are now. And so much so because I was on the floor with my face in tears and my girls were like, we're taking you out. You know, they took me to church. Mm -hmm. And I remember going, one of the girls in the group, um, we didn't really get along. And I remember she was the one sitting next to me in church and I just had my head on her shoulder crying the entire time. And here's the great thing about recovery. Like we just hold each other up. We support one another, whether we like each other or not, you know, we're going to love each other. So I had cried through the whole service and we get in the car and they're like, oh, we're going to a meeting. And I said, that's great. Anywhere except 
our area. Mm -hmm. You take me to Miami, take me anywhere. Just please don't take me to the Gold Coast area. Anybody will take one look at my face and know I'm a mess. Wow. You know, I never knew that, just so you know. So halfway there, they said where we were going, and I'm telling, and it was actually um, Jenny. I'm just going to say her mm -hmm. name because I love her. So she was driving, and she says, oh, no, no, we're going to go. It's the West Broward Club where it was. And I said, oh, no, stop the car. Let me out. Like, let me out in the middle of the road. I'm just very mm -hmm. dramatic at this point going, nope, not going there. And the girls were all like, no, we're going to go there. So we go, and I am hiding in the corner of the coffee room. I don't drink coffee at meetings, mm -hmm. but that's where I'm hiding because I don't want anyone to see me. And this person walks over, and I'm going to say his name too, Alex. I'd never met him before. Mm -hmm. He's one of my great friends now. He lives in another state. He walks up to me. He says, you got some time. You can speak, right? And I just was wow. like shaking my head like, God, what are you doing to me? Like, you have a plan, and I'm just going to go for it. Wow. I never knew this. Right. So then I go into this room and the room is packed and I'm totally uncomfortable. And half of the boyfriend's friends are like filling the back of the room. And wow. I'm like, I don't want to speak. I don't want to speak. But what happens is um, I show up and then the God of my understanding kicks in. And that's what happened. You know, you said I gave this great message and I don't remember it. I don't even remember saying the line that got you to recognize where you knew me from but i remember you coming up after and telling me and yeah i hung my head i was like oh no please <laughs> please don't know me from that and anybody that would look at me today would never think mm -hmm. that i was a crack smoking addict you know i had done drugs for 25 years i had done them every day for 25 years or at least chased them mm -hmm. I think I'd done almost every drug, um, maybe not in every method, but I always said, I'm never going to smoke crack. You know, I'm never going to shoot heroin. I'm never going to do these things. Mm -hmm. And I found myself in this position and started smoking crack, and it did get me off the oxys. I was snorting Oxycontins for six years. Wow. And every time I would go through the withdrawals when I couldn't get more, I was like, that's it. I'm not doing it again. And then the boyfriend would sit down with me and be like, how are we going to, you know, plot out? Mm-hmm. And I would say to him, like, can we just not get it? And he's like, oh, no, 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 we have to get it. And then it would just start all over again. Tell me your story, because I don't think I know it. I don't think I know, like, where you're from, like, what childhood was like. Because, you know, when you speak at meetings, like, I think it's a lot of topic discussions. I, I mean, I do my experience, strength, and hope a lot, but it's usually 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And it's impossible to fit my lifetime into 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. I was born in Hollywood, Florida. Represent. Yeah. I live in Fort Lauderdale. I used in the Tri-County area. I got clean in Fort Lauderdale. I grew up in a good home, loving parents. They took us to cultural events and the beach and parks, and we had a lot of vacations to the Keys. We lived well above our means, so they didn't teach me about financial responsibility or I'm not sure what they taught me. They're really good people. They taught me what they could from what they were taught, right? And I love my parents very much. Two older brothers and we grew up in what seemed a normal house. You know, we were Jewish by birth and atheist by my parents' choice. Mm -hmm. They um, had an experience before I was born and decided that God could not exist. 
And that's how I was raised. So the only thing we really talked about was what was for dinner and was my homework done and did I walk the dog? And I think that was it. So I grew up in this protected kind of environment. I really didn't hear too much about um, drugs or bad things that happened in the world. It was a very butterfly kind of mm -hmm. cocoon. And, you know, it was okay. I was a people pleaser very early on. I wanted to make my parents happy, so I did what they told me to do. And it was get good grades and don't make waves. And, you know, if I did act out, they would reprimand me, ground me, do whatever parents did. I grew up with my brothers protecting me when I was younger. And then when I got older, you know, we, I don't want to say fought a lot. We compared and challenged each other. And I was always trying to keep up with them or beat them. And I had this one brother who was doing drugs and we were on a vacation in the Keys and- How much older? Oh, how older? My mm -hmm. brothers are four and five years older than me. So I'm in the Keys with my family and at dinner at 12 years old, my mom had let me drink the wine at the table. And at the end of the dinner, they were still, my parents were hanging out at the table and us kids went to the docks. My one brother had brought a friend with him and we always got to take friends with us on vacations, which I thought was great. And so we're sitting there and my parents come out with half a bottle of wine and they're like, well, we don't want to throw it out. Who wants it? And nobody said a word. And I said, oh, I'll take it. And they handed it to me. Now, it didn't really dawn on me that there was anything wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But they gave me the half a bottle of wine and I started drinking it. And my brother lights up a joint and hands it to his friend. And the friend looks at him and says, do I give it to her? And he goes, yeah, give it to her. She's done it. So he thought I had already smoked pot. I was already smoking cigarettes. So that was my first experience into, you know, like getting high. Really, I was pretty high after all that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it just snowballed from there. I remember telling the story the first time I got high years later and my brother hearing it and going, I had no idea. You know, I never would have handed it to you. And I'm at this place today in my life where everything just happens the way it's supposed to, and I wouldn't be who I am today if any of this hadn't happened. So I'm 12 years old, and I'm getting high, and I'm living in this area of unincorporated Fort Lauderdale. It's Davie, but back then, I mean, I lived here before the highways were built, and, wow. you know, I just turned 51 this year. So, I'm, so you're a real Davie girl. I'm a real Davie girl, Yeah. Um, I'm from Davie too, which is so interesting. It is interesting, isn't it? And I've done every sect of people. Like I would do anything to fit in. We say we're chameleons. So I'd be punk. I'd be a cowgirl. I'd be, you know, whatever I needed to be. I fit in with my parents when they took me to see the King and I, and I'd fit in, you know, at the Go-Go's concert and I'd fit in at Charlie Daniels band. And I mean, wherever I went, I would just make myself fit in. I had every different haircut you could imagine. I wore different clothes for different things. And I just wanted to fit in. So the people that I was growing up with were all doing drugs. And if that's what they were doing and that's what I needed to do to fit in with them, then that's what I did. So I did a lot of drugs. I mean, a lot for a long time. And I had a lot of sex. And um, I was sexually abused by a trusted family member in my early teens. I was raped by a boyfriend. Wow. I was searching for that feeling of belonging or fitting in or being loved. And that's what I thought. I was so confused as to what love really was. Um, never talked to my parents about stuff because I didn't feel like I could. 
you know, I really never felt like I could, it all felt like it had to be secret. And I'll tell you, I had this experience as a very young child. When I wrote my first fourth step, this was my first memory and I won't be too graphic or anything, but I didn't think I could really remember anything before like six or seven years old, but this had to be about two or three. And my dad was putting a suppository in my behind as a treatment for whatever cold I had at the moment. And I remember my head was facing the front door of my bedroom and my parents had friends for dinner over that night. And my face could see their faces. Wow. And in my mind, I thought they could see my naked butt. They couldn't. As an adult, I can tell you, according to the angle of the wall, you know, I could know they could only see my face. But again, as a child, I couldn't process that information. And I felt that it was wrong. Like there's something that I was taught that like my body is something to be ashamed of. I shouldn't show it. Nobody should see it naked. So having to talk to my parents or my mom about anything of a sexual nature or just a physical thing, you know, uh, I didn't do it. I wasn't comfortable with it. So I ignored a lot of things for a long time. So I went through some crazy teens. I was a pretty good student graduated high school. I was also pregnant. I got pregnant by one of the men that I was sleeping with. I'm not sure exactly which one. I might think I know, but I can't be 100% sure because I wasn't sleeping with just one. And I ignored it. You know, I was a big girl. I'm still a big girl and that's okay. I'm I'm in self-acceptance today. I was high a lot. And I can say that like I just chose to ignore any sign that something was weird in my body. And so one night, 17 years old, 1987, I woke my parents up in the middle of the night. I was in a lot of pain and they took me to the ER and the woman behind the front desk says, oh, you're going to have a baby right now. And I start cursing her out because I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And so they put me out and I woke up the next morning and I'd given birth to a little girl. And my parents said, you know, whatever you decide, we support you. That was it. No guidance, no, and, and that's fine. Again, I don't hold it against them. And I gave the child up for adoption and went home and went into my room and got high. That's what I did. Like I would just use to numb out feelings. So the following year I had an abortion. I was a mostly good employee. I kept a job almost all the time. And in high school, I was in the work program. So I worked for an insurance company and then I moved to um, working in some other office in Davie. And when my boss did something that I didn't like, because I was so entitled that I could just quit a job, I lived at home with my parents and paid $30 a week rent. Mm -hmm. Um, I called my mom and said, that's it, I quit. And she was sitting at her job, a bookkeeper for a restaurant, and the manager was behind her and says, oh, that's your daughter, tell her to come in. My mom had such a stellar reputation that he was like, oh, well, if it's your daughter, she's gonna be great. So I went to work there as a cashier. So they trusted us and they should and they could and they did. (laughs) But she was a bookkeeper and I was a cashier and it was a money-making thing. And later in life, I would have thought, wow, we really could have. But my mom was was and is the most honest, sweet woman I've ever met. So Mm -hmm. everything was on the up and up. But I was drinking behind the cashier stand and, you know, I'd get high before I got to work and I'd get high after and 
then they started promoting me to assistant manager and this and that. And I would party with the employees and I would go dancing in the clubs all night long. And I would sleep at somebody's house and show up for work the next day in the same clothes. And I mean, it just snowballed, you know, like active addiction is for me, total insanity. And it snowballs from one bad decision into the next mm -hmm. constantly. I did finally lose that job, got another one in another restaurant, you know, and that's where I met the boyfriend that introduced me to the harder drugs. I really was an active but functioning addict for like a good 20 years. Wow. And then I met this gentleman, and again, I don't blame him. I made my decisions. But on our first date, he put a substance on the counter for me to snort, and I assumed it was cocaine, and I snorted it, and it wasn't. And I didn't even ask him what it was. Didn't matter. I just wanted him to love me. Mm -hmm. Hence the six years of snorting Oxycontin and having my whole life go down the tubes. So that's when you started? Quickly. What year yeah. was that? That was 1998. <sighs> See, I don't hold on to a lot of details. So the details you shared about the Shady Banks house. It like took me right back, but. Mm -hmm. So what happened in those six years? You know, people that aren't familiar with uh, how tragic and disastrous opiate addiction can be, you know? Well, I mean, for the bad choices of my life, I was still living at home at the age of 30, you know, still paying like maybe $50 a week in rent at this point. All of my money went to drugs. I worked hard and paid for, I think I paid for a car or but not much else. So when I met him, um, he lived in the next county and I would drive back and forth and I would sleep at his mom's and we decided to get an apartment together and we did. He didn't work uh, regularly, so I supported us. You know, I went to work every day and he would stay home and I would, you know, yell at him, please don't do all of our drugs while I'm at work so that when I come home, there's something to do we would be evicted from one apartment to the next. I'd get my car repossessed. I'd um, lose a job, get another job, you know, lie my way through to get the job as to why I lost the previous job, <sighs> borrow somebody's urine so I could mm -hmm. pass a drug test so that I could get a job. I mean, you know, all the things that we do, I don't really give it too much thought. So it's hard to, you know, think about going back through this six-year relationship of total chaos he was emotionally abusive. In the end, he was sexually abusive, but not in a forceful kind of way. He would just say like mean, ugly things to me during sex while we were, you know, in the midst of like the crack addiction and mm -hmm. all that. Um, we would have friends over who would shoot heroin. And I mean, he would have me go in the room and watch the girl shoot up. And I know he was like gearing me toward that. Mm -hmm. And it, it didn't actually come to pass. How did you get into the crack? Just was there one day? You know, we lived in this one apartment near the railroad tracks, which is now actually a halfway house. It's attached to like a recovery. It's funny how this place I used to smoke crack in is a recovery, <laughs> is a recovery house. house huh? But our neighbor was a crystal meth head. Mm -hmm. And I like to joke, you know, oh, I smoked crystal meth once. Like I didn't like it. I must have done it wrong. <laughs> you yeah. know, I must have smoked it wrong because I should have liked it. But I would go to work and that's what they would be doing all day long. And I remember coming home one day and he had this pipe and this crack and he was like, here, try this. Mm -hmm. And it really didn't take long at all to be like, oh, this is great. Yeah. So then we were hiding it from one another, stealing it from one another. Um, 
it would get pretty insane. I remember sleeping on top of my purse and my car keys so that he couldn't take my car or take my money or, you know, fighting with him about, you know, having to pay the rent so that we had a place to smoke this crack. We would buy food that we would never eat. I would end up having no food and make biscuits out of like flour and water. I mean, mm. <laughs> we just did some crazy, stupid stuff. How did you meet Doc and the house in Shady Banks? Like, how did you end up there? The boyfriend met him first okay. and it's just like, hey, we're going to this place and, you know, we're going to we're going to smoke their crack. Mm -hmm. So that was how he lured me over there. And the house I remember, it's exactly as you described it, like keep out and you couldn't mm -hmm. tell there was really a house back there. But when I first started going, the house was full of furniture. Wow. And I remember so you were there watching with the, it the disappear, plate? like watching everything disappear one piece by one piece. Wow. And I think if I remember you there, and I'm not sure, at the end, we would be sitting in our own rooms mm -hmm. that had no furniture at all. Mm -hmm. And so I was in this one box of a room with like my boyfriend and maybe one other person, which I feel was you, and we would just be smoking crack. And it's so uh, bizarre to me now as an adult because I see how sick it is that someone my age would because like I would be in school and I would just be thinking about what's going on at that house. You know, there'd be there'd be a lot of people in and out. It'd be a lot of different characters. So someone would get out of jail and like people would, you know, tell you, you got to give him crack. He just got out. And I'm like, I'm not giving him crack, you know. And I remember like being in there and this guy had just gone to jail. He was a big guy. And he told me, I just got a jail. Like, you're going to give me some. And I was like, bro, I'm not giving you any. And he looked around like this kid doesn't know who I am. And I was just like, bro, I don't give a fuck who you are. I'm not giving you anything. And I ended up not giving him any. And then a couple of days later, I'm there and I don't have any. And he gave me some. And then I was like, oh, wow, like uh, this guy ain't so tough after all. And, and maybe I should have gave him. Maybe I was being mean to him, you know. But I remember being there late night and everyone had already left. And Doc would be on the floor with a blanket drinking wine. And he would smoke crack like it was a cigarette, like he wouldn't get paranoid or whatever. I would just, and do you remember the automatic hurricane shutters that they would put Vaguely, on? Vaguely, yes. Yeah, Vaguely. I remember there was times where like we would get really paranoid and he would press this button and like the hurricane shutters would come on and it would be like, you thought it was pitch black before, it'd be like pitch black and people would be walking around with candles. And I had forgotten about that part of my life when I got clean because I was only going there for like probably six months, maybe a year. So shortly after that, you must have gotten clean. No, it doesn't feel like it was very shortly. Sure. Yeah. Um, we lost the last apartment and moved into this little hotel, motel, little hole. Um, had all of our boxes and the cat. And I mean, I was on a bicycle by this point wow. that somebody gifted to me. And I remember having water bottles that I had filled at the office tied to one handlebar and McDonald's on the other handlebar and riding my bike on Federal Highway and hitting a bump and falling. And my face hit the corner of this building. You know, my ankle was tore up and my face is tore up and I ride the bicycle home and it's just like, oh, where's the crack? Like it didn't even matter what I might've done to my body. The job at that time, they were suspicious extremely as they should be. And I would bluff my way out of it. My boss would threaten drug testing and I'd be like, go ahead. You know, and I was just really good at me too appearing to be normal. My dad would threaten like a blood test. I'm like, do it. 
Yeah, just do it. Whatever. Um, I played it off as if the boyfriend was abusive, the boyfriend was a drug addict, the boyfriend had all these problems, and it was just me. I was up all night like trying to talk girl. him off a ledge or yeah. something. You know, like I would just lay it all on him. And so at the end, I was um, smoking crack in the office bathroom mm -hmm. and nodding out at my desk. I would have my hands on the keyboard and I would wake up and I'd have three, four, 40 lines of J's across the screen. Like I would fall asleep with my finger on a key and it would just go. J. <laughs> and um, the boyfriend would come to the office because, you know, I've left him home with no drugs and no money. And at that point, the dealer was picking me up on Fridays to go get me to cash my paycheck and pay him for the week before's dope so that he could, you know, front yeah, me the next yeah. week. So then it was this horrible, vicious cycle. And so the boyfriend would come to the office and create scenes. And I remember calling the police and they were telling me to file a restraining order. And I went to the courthouse and started the process and then went home to get high and was like, this is taking too long. This is too involved. I'm not doing this. And the employer fired me. I um, was with this boyfriend again for like probably a few days nonstop because now I'm not going to work. And we got into this huge fight and he pushed me down and like I just packed up a few bags, like grocery bags of clothing, a toothbrush I hadn't used in a year. And I left, I left my cat, I left everything I owned. I, I mean, I just left. And I went and stayed with this woman who lived a few blocks away and she used to be our oxy dealer. Now she's smoking crack. Mm -hmm. And I have this warehouse unit that I had maintained the rent and it had all of our collectibles, like we had just all these somewhat valuable collectibles. And so I'm selling collectibles. I'm on the phone all day long trying to find people to buy them. And so I'm making my money that way. The woman I'm staying with is escorting. She's making her money that way. And we're smoking crack together. And I had heard that the boyfriend got evicted. So I went back to get some belongings and found the cat in the closet. So I took the cat and some of my belongings and feel like I lived with her about a month unemployed and selling those belongings that weren't a hundred percent mine, but I felt justified because I had paid for them in, to begin with. I actually don't tell this story when I speak because I don't really want people to think that I got clean for some man. I did not, but I went on this date, right? I called this last person to buy these collectibles mm -hmm. and he says, nah, I'm not interested in buying those, but do you want to go out to dinner? And I'm like, oh, okay, sure. So I go out on a date with him. It was great. Drink a lot of alcohol. And I go back to the room that I'm staying in somebody's house and smoking crack for another week. And then I have another date with him. The woman I was staying with was getting me ready. Like we're in the bathroom and she's putting on my makeup for an hour and a half while he's waiting in the parking lot because mm -hmm. we're busy smoking crack. And he doesn't know that. So we go out on this date and I uh, pass out on him. I hadn't slept in about a week. And she was blowing up my phone and he picks up the phone and he puts it all together and he wakes me up and starts screaming at me like, I don't even want to know you unless you're clean. Like, I don't want to know you. And I thought, what's that? Clean? Mm -hmm. What's that? So I go back to this room and this girl had locked herself in the bathroom with all of our dope. And I'm like, this is crazy. Like, this life is crazy. Like, I'm just, where am I going from here? Like, I don't even live anywhere. I'm just staying on the couch basically what did your family think 
Like, were they trying to help you at one point and then just kind of like thought you were just going to stay like that? I feel like they probably said some things to me along the way that were like, you're making a lot of bad choices and you shouldn't be with this guy. And I was just like, screw you. I'm going to do what I want to do. And you can't tell me not to date him. And, you know, thinking that I was right or something. And um, they really, I think they just gave up. Uh, they still would have us for Christmas. Uh, we would be like three hours late for the Christmas breakfast mm -hmm. and everybody be mad because they're waiting to open presents for us. And we'd be stopping at every church parking lot between my place and their place to smoke crack on the way. It was insane. So that night when this woman locked herself in the bathroom with all the dope, the next morning my parents were picking me up for my niece's ninth birthday. They picked me up and I got in the car and I just broke down and was like, you have to help me. Like, I can't, I can't keep this up. You know, this is no life. And uh, I said, can you take me and the cat? And they're like, oh, no, we can't take that cat. And I'm like, oh, well, that's not good enough, you know. So we go to my niece's birthday party and I share with my brother and his wife and they're like, we'll take you, but you have to follow these rules. And they laid out all these rules and I was just like, yes, I'll do whatever I need to do. And at the end of the party, they're like, yeah, we changed our mind. We can't take the cat. And I'm like, all right, I'll give the cat to the Humane Society. So um, the Humane Society was closed that day. So I asked the... It's funny because we always say like, oh, people can't get clean because they're a cat. And this is like, as a, you know, a saying we say, and then you really do have this cat that's holding you back. Well, actually, I feel like God saw a way for me to keep the cat a couple of times, mm -hmm. you know, like there was a couple of, and I mean, this cat really fended for himself. I don't even know why the cat liked me. <laughs> like I didn't take good care of him. Uh. Um, and I was a dog person. I was raised with German shepherds. You uh. know how I became this cat person? I don't know. So I was willing to give the cat up and I didn't have to. So I went to this place. I was, I stayed at my brother's that first night and I went to this place where I had been staying and I say to the woman, can you please keep my cat for one day? I'll take him to the Humane Society tomorrow. Who was this woman? The aunt of the woman that used to be my oxy dealer. Mm -hmm. We were living in a room in her house, mm -hmm. in a very nice part of town, you know, yacht parked in the backyard and at the edge of the yacht club. And, you know, we're in this little tiny room, like just smoking crack all the time. When I'm lost in my drug addiction and active addiction, you could have the whole state of Texas and your life is like extremely small. <laughs> like your space is just very, very small. Yep. And today I have the whole world, you know, I've been to 16 different countries and I have friends all over the world and I just, I can go anywhere and do anything. I just can't use successfully. So I don't do that one thing. But back to the story, the aunt, she made a phone call and she put me on the phone with her friend, this gentleman. And he says, I have a room for you and your cat. And I was like, oh, I don't have a job. I don't have a car. I don't have any money but I have a desire, you know, to do better. And he says, well, we're not even talking about any of that. We're just talking about friends helping friends. And I was like, wow. what's that concept, right? <laughs> like, I have no idea. So he left um, the key to his home underneath the doormat. He never met me. I mean, wow. here I am, a drug addict for 25 years. You can't trust me. And he left the key under the mat and I'm standing there with my cat and the cat litter box, cause that's something you have to have with a cat. Mm -hmm. And my niece lent me a sleeping bag. Wow, 
And so cute. I mean, I, this is what I had. And so I went in and he told me the room to the left and the room to the left was empty. It was kind of like that room in Shady mm -hmm. Banks. It was me and the cat and the cat litter box and the sleeping bag. And uh, there's another piece to the story um, that is religious or spiritual. And, and I'll share that in a second. So I feel like this God who I always claimed didn't even exist, put everything in place for me to be in just the right place. Like I said to you, you're in the right place. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting in this girl's room smoking crack and one of my ex coworkers calls me and says, you know, will you go to church with me? And he had been asking all along, like for months and months and seemed like forever. And I always said, no, 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 but don't stop asking. You can keep asking me, but the answer is no. And this day that he called me, I said, yes. And I had been smoking crack all day. Wow. And so he picked me up with his six-year-old daughter in the back seat, and I get out of the house, like crack high, you know, mm -hmm. and I get into the passenger seat and I just put my head in my hands and I'm just like, oh, don't even look at me in the face. Like, you'll just know, you'll know I'm like the worst human being on mm -hmm. the planet. So he takes me to this massive church they call the Warehouse Church. I think I went to church once when I was a kid for an Easter thing that was like, oh, an egg hunt or something mm -hmm. with my sister-in-law. So I go and this Bible finds its way to my lap and I don't know what to do with it. And somebody's up on the stage speaking and I'm not hearing anything, but I feel like my heart or my spirit was hearing something and uh, tears are pouring out of my body. And so my head is in my hands. I don't want anyone to look me in the face. Tears are running down. And I heard a voice inside me and it said, I love you and I forgive you. And I thought, well, if God really exists and he loves me and he forgives me, then I should love me and I should forgive me. Wow. But I didn't know how to do that. You know, I knew how to get high. So after the service, my friend took me into the bookstore and he bought me this Bible. So he takes me back to the house and I go inside with this Bible and I smoke crack because that's what I know how to do. Three more days. And then that third day or fourth day, that Sunday or Saturday, what it was, my niece's birthday party is my clean day, September wow. 24th, 2006. So when I get to this house, this apartment, this place, this room, I have the cat, the cat litter box, and, and a Bible. And I'm clean. And a Bible. And I have wow. one day clean. Wow. I have like one day clean. But I don't even know the word clean. clean. And I don't know mm -hmm. about 12-step fellowships. I don't know about recovery. I'm... 36 years old, almost 37 at that point, And I didn't know anything. I used to run restaurants. I used to like be functioning. And I remember uh, being dropped off for a beach meeting and then having to ask a member of the fellowship, like, how do I get a cap? Like, I didn't even know how to call a cap. My story started on day two, really, you know, like day two, I woke up and I'm in this empty room with the sleeping bag and the cat. And I'm looking out the window, waiting for the sun to come up. And I'm just waiting. There's nothing I can do. I don't know where the light is. I don't know why I can leave the room. I don't know any. I'm just like in this room. It's funny. It's very similar to my first meditation when I started doing <laughs> that, when I realized that I could actually get up and move, you know. But the sun came up, and what I did was I opened up the Bible to like page one and started reading. I called a friend that I used to work with, a woman in, in the industry that's predominantly male, and we were friends. I used to smoke pot with her. I used to house sit for her when she went on vacations, she, lots of cats. She came and she took me to lunch. And I told her this whole story, like my whole life. Mm -hmm. She took me back to her office and we 
formulated an email to my employer. And I say formulated, manipulated, mm -hmm. you know, the wording to sound just right to maybe get a shot at getting my job back. And it was like, okay, I have a drug problem, but I am taking control of my life. This is what I'm doing. And I would very much appreciate an opportunity to earn back your trust. I'll do anything. You can keep my salary. You can, I just want you to trust me again. And they thought about it for almost two weeks. They brought me in for an interview on day 13 clean. And the only reason I was clean in my mind is that I knew they could drug test me and I wanted to pass that test. So I wasn't gonna use no matter what. Didn't know the term no matter what. <laughs> Haven't been to a meeting at this Hadn't point. Hadn't been to a meeting. Wow. 13 days. So not believing in God and then having that experience that I call a divine intervention and then having 13 days to like wake up to the sunlight and just like read the Bible in the morning. I felt that God exists and he loves me and he forgives me and he's giving me an opportunity to put right my now. life back in order, right? Mm -hmm. And that place, that room was like just in the right part of town, not so far that I couldn't ride the bicycle to work, that I couldn't just do what I needed to do to get it all to get not far from the warehouse that I still had been paying the rent somehow. So my employer took me down for this interview and they had um, a contract that I had to sign to go to 90 meetings in 90 days in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the owner of the company at 82 years old had over 50 years in AA. Wow. 82 years old, and I had to explain to this 82-year-old man about my drug use and wow. that I wasn't drinking alcohol, but I was doing this and this and this. And we crossed off AA, wrote NA, and initialed it, just like we do with contracts. Mm -hmm. um, there were other stipulations. The bookkeeper was going to help me manage my money and pay back my debts. And I don't remember what the other stipulations were, but I signed you know, just like being willing to give my cat away, I was willing to do whatever it took to get what I thought was a life worth living back, which to me was just being employed and being told I was a good worker. Because when my employer told me that I did a good job, I felt some kind of self-worth. So recovery started working on me to where I was able to set boundaries with my employer. My job no longer defines my self-worth. And so they couldn't use me outside of work hours. And I was just very strict about, you know, I come in at this time, I leave for lunch at this time, I come back, I leave at this time. Like, unless it's seriously important, don't call me, which is huge. Cause mm -hmm. I was always just that people, that people pleaser. pleaser, right? 24 seven, I'm there, anything to do, kiss your butt just to make you like me. They wanted me to go to a meeting that night and I was supposed to have a chaperone, but he wasn't available. So I said, oh, I'm gonna go. You know, and I did. I rode my bicycle to the 12-step house in Fort Lauderdale, Friday wow. night, mainliners, wow. sitting in the middle of this meeting. Nobody's even looking at me twice because I look like somebody who has never done drugs. Yeah. Nobody can look at me and say, there's a drug addict. Mm -hmm. I just look very um, like a vanilla. Mm -hmm. I don't know. <laughs> right? I think I look very vanilla. You look like a school teacher. I look like a school teacher. Yes. I look like a good girl. And I just wasn't a good girl. Mm -hmm. But I'm sitting in the middle of this meeting, and again, I don't understand a word the people are saying. You know, somebody's up at the microphone speaking. Um, somebody got up and did key tags, and I didn't get up for a white key tag. I didn't understand. And I rode that bicycle back to this clean room that this gentleman had gifted me. And I thought, um, wow, man, 90, 90 of these, and I'm not going to go. Who's going to know? 
And then I heard that voice inside me again, and it said, I'll know and you'll know. And when you look at your employer in the face at the end of 90 days and say that you've been to a meeting every day, you're going to tell the truth. And I thought, well, that has to be God, because I don't know truth. I've never told the truth. I lied to even get the interview. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know truth. You know, I, I never told myself the truth. And so um, I went. I went the next day, and I picked up a white key tag, and I got this amazing hug. People started offering me rides to meetings and phone numbers. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to do this for 90 days. But day 91, you know, maybe I could smoke some pot. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe I could do something that, like, never made me homeless or hate myself or lose a job. You know, I was going to these meetings every day, and I started listening, you know, and recovery meetings, 12-step fellowships, they have readings at the beginning of the meetings, and the fellowship I'm in, they have this one reading, How It Works, and this one night, I'm probably in it about 80 days, and I hear the last sentence, we are people with the disease of addiction who must abstain from all drugs in order to recover. Mm-hmm. And I just sat there and was like, I haven't done a drug in like 80 days. And I haven't thought about a drug in like 60 days. And I don't want to do a drug today. And I mean, this is crazy. Like, this is working. I don't want to use. Mm-hmm. The obsession had been lifted. And we say that an addict, any addict, can lose the desire to use. That happened to me. Mm-hmm. Stop using, lose the desire to use, and find a new way to live. So I'm like, well, let me check out this new way to live. Right? I ask a woman to sponsor me, and I start doing what she says, you know, call me every day for 30 days. I would call her and I would just say like, this is Eve. You told me to call, call you tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I had nothing to say. (laughs) And I was a really good follower, you know, and when I was using, I was a really good follower. When the boyfriend told me where to cop, how to cop, when to cop, what to pay, I did it. When I brought the drugs home and he was like, you use it this way and you cut it this way and you light it this way and you smoke it this way and you, I did it. You know, if anybody told me what to do, I did it. So when she started telling me what to do, I did it until I realized that I could think for myself. Mm-hmm. And how I realized that I could think for myself was when we disagreed. And believe it or not, it was about the cat. Wow. I was um, diagnosed with a secondary illness. And she said, you need to get rid of your cat. Your cat could infect you if because he was scratching me all the time. Wow. She said, he's in the litter box, he's scratching you, like it could kill you, you need to get rid of the cat. And I said, oh, I'm gonna get rid of you before I get rid of my cat. <laughs> and that was the first time like I had stood up for myself and yeah. was like, no, I don't have to agree with you. Like I can keep my cat. How long were you clean at this point? 10 months. Wow. I was 10 months clean. I was dealing with this secondary illness diagnosis and going to the doctor and treating it and keeping my cat and my home and my recovery routine and my meetings and sponsees and step work and family. And I still, to this day, I'll be doing laundry in my apartment where I pay the rent and I buy the laundry detergent and I'll just be overwhelmed with gratitude that like, I do this. I keep my life clean and maintained and serene most of the time, not all the time. Mm -hmm. But I'm just amazed, you know? Like, I remember smoking crack, and it was Hurricane Wilma, I think, and we were without power for three weeks. But the Fort Lauderdale Boat Show had power. And the hotel near there, Lago Mar, which is a very expensive hotel, Mm -hmm. they had power. 
So I took my crack pipe and my crack and my laundry and went into their laundry room and sat in their bathroom and smoked crack while I did my laundry. Wow. So, you know, I did what I had to do then, but today I pay my rent and Mm -hmm. my electric and, you know, it's pretty cool. I just am always amazed. So, I mean, recovery has just been this like wild ride of a journey and I've learned how to forgive myself and others. You know, some of the things I talked about, like um, contracting that illness or giving a child up for adoption or being raped or being sexually abused. I have found peace with it all. I have found forgiveness for myself and others through these 12 steps. So when I share my story and I say, in that church that moment and I heard God say, I love you and I forgive you. And I'm like, oh, well, if he can, I should, but I didn't know how. My 12-step fellowship and my sponsor and my step work have taught me how to love myself and forgive myself. And when I love myself and forgive myself, then I can love others and forgive them too. And I can find compassion. Even for my abusers, I can find a common thread. In our fellowship, we talk about unity and So again, even the people that I don't like, I love. I love them where they're at. I have no right to judge anybody. I mean, I know who I am and who I've been and who I have a tendency to be if I don't toe the line. Mm -hmm. You know, if I don't keep all of those pieces of my recovery in their proper balance, like I'm easily falling back into old patterns. And so this just happened yesterday, so I'll share this. (laughs) Food is an old pattern for me. And I've been doing really well for a long time. And then like the pandemic came and even the first month or two, I was doing really good. You know, I was getting boxes of vegetables and sharing them with friends and finding all these new ways to cook things. I now make my own vegetable broth and I'm not vegetarian, but I eat predominantly vegetarian. Um, I love, don't get me wrong, I love seafood. I love steak. I just predominantly eat healthy, clean things. But every now and again, it's like, okay, I want something fried, covered in sauce. Mm -hmm. I want something that's so bad for me. And I've been struggling with allergies for the last eight or nine years. I mean, when it first started, I was in the hospital for a couple of days. It was so severe, anaphylactic reaction to certain foods or preservatives. I don't really know. So yesterday, I'm like, that's it. I'm going to go get something. Mm-hmm. And I did. And I ordered it and I picked it up after work. And Outback has this new appetizer <laughs> called these twisted ribs. And the ribs are fried, wow. covered in this sweet sticky sauce. And then they have the onion blossom sauce drizzled mm-hmm. on it. Four ribs in an order. You know, I got it once with a friend, split it. And I'm like, okay, well, now I can eat them all myself. Like mm-hmm. I don't have to share them. It's like drugs, right? Yeah. Like I don't have to share. And then I'm like, well, I'm this part of this dine rewards program. So like, (laughs) let me order 20 bucks worth because I want my points towards my freebie down the line. Cause I'm an addict, you know, and like, I want, I want, I want. So I ordered the wings, which I've never had there before, but somebody said they were really good. So I get home, I'm driving home and I'm watching the clock and I'm like, oh, it's like 15 minutes from the Outback I picked up until I get to my front door. And I'm like, oh, that's not bad, you know? And I didn't realize, like, I'm clocking how long till I use, really. And I'm like, all right, Eve, don't just go in the house and just inhale the food. Like, feed the cats. I have two cats now. (laughs) I did. I went in the house, and I just ignored the cats, and I used. I, like, totally shoved all that food in my face and was like, I didn't physically feel bad after I ate. I didn't eat so much that I was uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. but I emotionally and mentally and spiritually felt horrible. I felt like I had used. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, recovery and staying in touch with my sponsor and doing... At least you could wait to get home. I'm eating them in the car. I was thinking about it, but <laughs> these were messy things to eat in the car. And I have, like, it's almost a new car. I don't eat in my car. Okay. That's one thing. I don't eat there my car. Go. I don't even like food in the body of the car. How did um, your journey with, like, spirituality and religion take off? Well, one of those other stipulations on that contract with my employer was... 90 meetings in 90 days at this 12-step fellowship NA, and then also the same at at that church. At that time, it was called Free Indeed. Mm -hmm. We would go, it was like on a Thursday night. And like a was, recovery thing? It's a, it's a 12-step recovery thing. It's a Christ-centered 12-step mm -hmm. recovery thing. And they would have a speaker on some topic, and then you would sit in these separate tables, women with women, men with men, codependency at this table, chemical dependency at this table, sexual integrity, or lack thereof, mm -hmm. at this table. And so I was sitting at these tables, and I heard the leadership team talking about free indeed changing to celebrate recovery. And the woman who was always leading the table that I was at, she would have me help facilitate the group, like co-facilitate mm -hmm. is what they would say. And then the leadership team came to me and said, you know, how would you like to help us lead Celebrate Recovery as we start it? So for my first eight years clean, I did both. I did Celebrate Recovery and Narcotics Anonymous. I feel that I was a leader in both. Um, what happened at Celebrate Recovery is that I admitted that I had sex with my boyfriend and they instead of encouraging me to live according to biblical principles i feel that they judged me wow. and shunned me so i stopped going mm -hmm. i still go to some christian recovery groups on occasion um there are some great ones with people that i've known my whole clean time but i am narcotics anonymous all the way it's my predominant mm -hmm. that's it yeah, sometimes um, when people say like, oh, the 12-step program, NAAA, or like super judgy or whatever, I was like, go to another one. Yeah. You know, go to a church or go to something else, you know. Um, I feel like it's the best bag in town. It's like, it's where I feel home. I feel like I could say anything. I could be anyone. Like when I go there and I sit there, like, it just feels like home. I There's no other thing, you know, you're talking about when you got a hug um, when you picked up that white key tag and like till today like i still remember what it felt like when i got a white key tag and this woman hugged me and like it's so different than any other experience because like my family told me they loved me and uh, i grew up with like you know people saying they love me but i could never feel it and i often share about that that like i couldn't feel like you could say it and say it and hug me and i just never felt it and um i believe like you can only feel what you allow yourself to feel to yourself, you know, and I just never loved myself or felt worthy of it. And when I walked into my first meeting, I felt it. It was like um, standing up your whole life and sitting down for the first time. Like it was just like, what this, a relief. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And I think a part of me had forgotten that feeling like the book talks about like, like, forget how to love, we forget how to be loved. Like, that was something in my life that had there was an, it was the switch was off. Mm hmm. And I didn't even know it was off until it went on. And I remember like just early on going to meetings and people hugging you that you don't know and telling you they love you. And it's just, and it didn't feel weird. Like people say like it felt weird, like it felt genuine and uh, life-changing, you know? 
some of my first early on experiences with that were mostly from men who would give me rides and not want anything from me. They didn't want sex. They didn't want money for gas. They didn't want, they would give me recovery CDs mm -hmm. and tips about the next great meeting mm -hmm. or, and I was always in shock because I never had any interaction with a man that didn't want something from me. It was amazing. I mean, I, I was quite promiscuous in my active addiction and I've been with two men in the last 14 years, which to me is tremendous. So when I shared that at my church mm -hmm. recovery group, I was like pretty proud of myself. Yeah. That, But either way, I don't wanna judge them as they have judged me because I know that judging is wrong. Mm -hmm. But for me, the 12-step fellowship that I go to, I can share anything. I can, we can talk about masturbation and it's not, it's self-care, mm -hmm. it's not wrong, <laughs> yeah. you know? It's, um, I can be more specific about some of the things that I've mentioned tonight and I can share them openly and freely and supposedly, you know, we have a tradition that keeps what we say in a meeting anonymous, in a meeting. Mm -hmm. right? Whether it is or it isn't, I've always trusted, you know, that it, it just is, mm -hmm. it just is. And I know that when people share things with me, they know that they can trust that it won't leave me. You know, and that's some, I've learned how to be a woman of integrity. I've learned how to feel for other people and then not put myself in jeopardy just because I feel for other people. So I've learned some amazing things. That self-love, you know, God's love, self-love, love for others. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. And with that, I can do anything. You know, I'm a part-time college student. I travel, well, before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I traveled and hope to again soon. I've spoken other countries. I'll be on a uh, in a meeting in Sweden on Sunday speaking wow. on Zoom. Cool. Yeah, I'm very excited. This is an amazing ride. Yeah. Like I never could have imagined back then what clean was, living a life clean, not having to chase something or someone. I never would have imagined eating the 10 pieces of food that I ate last night, which really, because when I think about mm -hmm. it, I'm like, you didn't really eat that much. But it was the way and how it made me feel and having the awareness to say, you know what? That is not what I want. Mm -hmm. That's not the way I want to live my life. That's not how I want to treat myself. Um, my sponsor today tells me to be gentle with myself. I am on my second sponsor. I've stayed clean through a lot of stuff. You know, that medical diagnosis, the boyfriend relapsing and breaking my heart, changing jobs by my choice, not because I'd been asked to leave. Mm -hmm. um, my dad passed in 2013. Wow. I didn't use. The gentleman who sent me into recovery, Hal, uh, he passed when I had seven years clean. He was 89 years old. Wow. So at 82, when he gave me the second chance, he didn't think that I had changed and he didn't want to give me that chance, but some people that I worked with talked him into it. So I didn't realize, cause I'm very self-absorbed, right? So he was watching me like my whole first six months clean. Like he was watching me like a hawk, you know? And he realized that something had changed and he wanted to know what. So he went to that church that that coworker took me to. Mm -hmm. He went with his wife and he came back to work on a Monday and he said to me, I went and I liked it and I want to go again next week, but my wife's out of town. And I said, I'll take you. So the following weekend, I picked him up, drove him to this church, sat in this warehouse church with him. And at the end of the service, he looked at me and he said, I want to go forward. Will you go with me? 
and I walked him forward and he accepted Christ and he started to change. So with 50 plus years in AA at 82 years old, I guess they call him a dry drunk, mm -hmm. you know, like he didn't really practice spiritual principles. He was just kind of mean, mm -hmm. you know, he would yell at everybody and he Whoa. was just a cranky person. Whoa. I'm really trying to speak like a lady, <laughs> like I'm taught to. He did this, he accepted God exists and made this uh, acknowledgement and you know, he went on about his life, right? And his wife would call me and she'd be like, I don't know what you've done with him, but it's great. It's great, you know? <laughs> For the next six and a half, seven years, he would call me and he would tell me what he was reading in the Bible and he would tell me about the church he was going to and he would tell me about the service he was doing wow. and the book studies and the men's groups and the this and the that. And he would call me and he'd be all excited. Wow. And he passed at 89 years old and his wife asked me to be one of three people to eulogize at his memorial to tell this story. So I got to tell this story. And I do like to share this and it's interesting in the fellowship I'm in, you know, we say it's a spiritual not religious program so i use the appropriate fellowship language to say all of these things you know i don't say church i don't say christ i just got in my understanding and uh, this place of worship and i'm just very vague about everything mm -hmm. i got to tell that story and i tell this story in meetings in that language because i want anyone in the room to know like it doesn't matter how young you are or how old you are or how far gone you are or how not far gone you, like there is room in our fellowship or in any fellowship for all manifestations mm -hmm. of the recovering person you know we can all recover and it just you just never know yeah my first sponsor was very i wouldn't say religious but he was like, if you don't believe in God, like you're a fucking, he would, he would go off the handle, you know? I had never heard someone like talk about God in like such an aggressive way, you know? And he really instilled in me, like, you need to pray. You got to pray every day. And I would call him and he'd be like, did you pray today? I'd be like, no. And he'd be like, he'd hang up the phone. He'd be like, well, how could you not pray before you call me? What if I don't answer? You're not going to have that. He really instilled that that was your first line of defense. Right. That that was the first thing you needed to get a relationship with. And I would say, I don't believe in God. And he was like, did anyone ask you to believe in God? I told you to pray. And I'd be like, well, I don't I don't know what I'm praying to. He was like, I don't care. Your job is to talk in the phone. I don't care what it says back, you know, like. And he just like really in a military type of way. Wow. You know, hit your knees. Like, did you, you know, I remember he used to say, like, did you hit your knees today? And as somebody who doesn't believe in God, like getting on your knees to pray was such a weird thing. And um, I was just willing to do whatever this guy said, mainly because he had visible track marks. He was a hardcore drug addict. He talked about being on methadone for years, eating out of dumpsters. And now he was clean. Like I had never seen that in my life. Like nobody got like we were never smoking crack in shady banks and somebody was like, hey, you heard about Phil? He's clean now. Like people didn't get clean. I never even heard of a clean person. Like you said, you didn't even know the word clean. When I saw clean addicts together in groups, it was like I couldn't imagine one clean person, let alone groups of them all over the world meeting and hanging out like there's a whole society of these people. You know, my friend says we're like vampires, you know, like we only know each other. It's like this underground world of people that are born again, reliving a whole nother life that, you know, I would look at you and never know. And even with me, like people look at me and they don't think like I was smoking crack at 14 or something like that. Right. You know, we have this common bond. Mm -hmm. 
And I always think of you as like that person who like reinforced that God is real and reinforced that I'm in the right place because I didn't question it after that. That was the moment where I was like, I'm in the right place. I'm here, you know, because being so young, I really was like, there wasn't that many young people and the young people that were there were coming and going. And I knew in my heart I was an addict. Like I just knew that like I had a hardcore drug problem, but I just, I didn't want to believe it. And when I saw you that night, it changed my whole life. So I just want to say thank you for that. Thank you for sharing that part of your story with me. Always, we do share about this and I'm very grateful. I just bowed my head and thanked my God for that moment, you know, because you have done amazing, great things. Your recovery looks great on you, you know, and you help so many people. So I'm just extremely grateful to God for using me and your life, for using you and mine and, Mm -hmm. and everyone else's. And that's how we recover. You know, it's about connection connection to God, connection Mm -hmm. to ourselves, and connection to each other. And uh, my first sponsor always said, if the word God scares you out out of the rooms, like what's out there is going to scare you right back in. Mm -hmm. Give it a shot, you know? Give it a shot. Cool. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.